This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Our God is worthy, is he not? Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Alliance Bible Church. I'm glad to have you here. Our desire for you this morning is for you to connect with the hope of the gospel that is found in Jesus Christ. Now, for the past year and a half, we've been working our way through the entire Bible. And today we are going to continue our journey through the scriptures as we enter into the book of Jeremiah. And so if you want to, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 1. Now, a little context about the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. His ministry spanned roughly 40 years and began during the reign of King Josiah of Judah. His ministry takes place during the narrative found in 2 Kings chapters 22 through 25 in roughly 627 B.C. Now, as a reminder, after the reign of David's son, King Solomon, you can see up there that Israel split into two distinct regions, two distinct nations, the northern ten tribes, known as the kingdom of Israel, and the southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah became known as the kingdom of Judah. Now, that happened around 930 B.C. As of the writing of Jeremiah in the 600s, The Middle Eastern world is in the midst of geopolitical upheaval. The northern kingdom of Israel no longer exists. The ten northern tribes were overwhelmed by the Assyrians in 722 BC and taken away into exile. The Medes and the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians at Nineveh. Remember the story of Jonah goes to Nineveh. So the Assyrians were defeated at Nineveh in 612 BC and soon after wiped out the Assyrian Empire. The Egyptians have been seeking greater influence in the region, yet are defeated by the Babylonians in retreat from the Near East conquest indefinitely. And so by the end of Jeremiah's ministry in roughly 570 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians will have conquered much of the Near East. So that's that slide right there. The temple will have been destroyed, and the lion's share of the kingdom of Judah will be exiled to Babylon. And we'll see on the next slide the path that they had to go, the red line there, all the way to Babylon. And that is where the book of Daniel is eventually written. Now, Jeremiah's ministry is one full of frustration and longing. Similar to someone watching a loved one succumb to an addiction, Jeremiah had to watch the kingdom of Judah continue to fall away from the Lord and turn to great evil, even child sacrifice. He consistently called Judah to repent and warned of God's impending wrath, yet was simply faced with ridicule, persecution, and heartbreak. During his life, he would be beaten, placed in stocks, and left for dead in a muddy cistern. He was considered a scourge by the people of Judah, yet remained faithful to the Lord. With all that in mind, let's turn to Jeremiah 1.1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests 
who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Now Anathoth is roughly three miles north of Jerusalem and was a home for priests, many of whom would have been threatened by the reformations that King Josiah was making. We'll pick it up here in verse 2. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Josiah began to rule in 640 B.C., at the age of eight. It's a little young for a king, wouldn't you say? <laughs> the 13th year of Josiah's reign, so eight plus 13, we've got 21-year-old, would roughly be 627 BC, which is when Jeremiah would start to hear, from the word, hear the word of the Lord. During Josiah's reign, part of the Mosaic law was discovered, and the people were called back to following the Lord. It's pretty amazing um, as you think about the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law and everything the Lord had said, right, in the book of, of Deuteronomy and the stories we read in Genesis and Exodus and how God cared for his people and loved his people and created this nation chosen to be light to the world. And here, a few generations later, we see they've completely even forgotten it exists, that they stumbled upon it in the temple of the Lord. The word of God is not something to be forgotten. And when we forget it, we become a lost people, as Israel had. And so, during Josiah's reign, the Mosaic Law was discovered, and the people were called back to following the Lord. Unfortunately, this did not last past Josiah's reign. And after his death, the following kings returned to the idolatrous ways this would culminate in the Babylonian exile and the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. Picking up at verse 4 again. Now the word of the Lord came to me. Notice the repeat emphasis that the scriptures have of the same phrase from verse 2. Jeremiah wants us to know that his message is from the Lord. These are not his words. They are from our Lord. We will discover why he emphasizes this as we go on. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Let's consider the use of the word before. It implies intentionality and deliberate choice. God did not happen upon Jeremiah and then ask him to do something. The Lord skillfully molded and formed him with a specific purpose in mind. King David echoes this sentiment in Psalm 139 when he says, For you formed my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. With the skill of a potter, our God shapes and molds us into a beautiful creation. As we were originally created from the dust of the earth, the Lord tells us that he is continuing to take special care in us as his creation. You are not an accident or a mistake or a lucky shot. 
Your life was ordained by the one who formed the universe and has created you with a purpose. Your life matters. No matter how we feel or what our circumstances may be telling us, our lives matter. Jesus tells us that our Heavenly Father is intimately involved in the minutia of our daily existence. He knows our words before we say them. He knows our plans before we conceive them. And he even knows how many hairs we have on our head, some more than others, right? We have a Father who has always known us and elegantly formed us into being. As a side note, commentator Derek Kidner mentions that the weight of this verse and similar ones like it, for example, Romans 8.29 that says, Those whom God foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The purpose of these verses is to reassure and reorient us to our Heavenly Father rather than to bait sovereign grace versus free will. Picking up in verse 6. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Here we see a resurgence of an ongoing theme that exists throughout the entirety of Scripture. The unlikely candidate. Jeremiah states that he is a poor spokesman for God because of his age and ability. King David was so unlikely that his own father did not even call him to come in when the prophet Samuel came to anoint one of his sons, the new king. God tells Samuel that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Gideon was found hiding wheat from the Midianites when the Lord said, Greetings, mighty warrior. The Apostle Paul was on his way to persecute Christians when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and called him to ministry. Mary Magdalene, not Peter or James or John or anyone from Jesus' most inner circle, was the first witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jacob was the younger brother of Esau and also very deceitful, yet God used him to establish the nation of Israel. Moses had fled Egypt, fearing for his life, and resigned himself to living life in the desert. He claims to be a nobody and have no speaking ability. Jeremiah echoes a similar sentiment to that of Moses when God calls him. Who am I to go? I am not a good speaker. I won't be successful. Notice that neither Jeremiah nor Moses ever struggled with the clarity of God's call. They didn't say, what are you trying to say? They knew exactly what God was asking. They simply didn't believe they were the right ones for the job. What follows is a reminder that God doesn't call the equipped, but rather he equips the called. Picking up in verse 7. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. 
The Lord will provide Jeremiah exactly what he needs in order to accomplish his will. If you only walk away with one thing from today's message, it is this. Our God is a provider. He will give us exactly what we need, when we need it, in order to accomplish his will for us. This is a life-altering, game-changing, critical reality. Do I trust God to provide for me? So much of the essence of our faith boils down to this. Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 12 that when they are persecuted and brought to trial, they don't need to worry about what to say, for the Holy Spirit will give them the right words to say in the moment. They only need to trust. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that we don't need to worry about what we will eat or what we will wear, because our Heavenly Father knows we need these things and will provide them for us. He says, rather, we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, the clothes, the food, the shelter, all these things will be added unto us. Jesus says that if God provides for the birds of the air and he provides for the lilies of the field, how much more will he provide for his children as we are much more valuable than birds or flowers? When Israel was backed up to the Red Sea being pursued by a ruthless Egyptian army, God provided a way through the sea. When Daniel was in the lion's den, God closed the mouths of the lions. When Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego refused to bow down to an idol, God provided them protection in the midst of the fiery furnace. So much protection that even their clothes did not smell like smoke. When young David faced the giant Goliath, God provided him with the courage and trust to defeat a more skilled enemy with one stone. When Haman desired to annihilate the Jews, God provided protection through Queen Esther's appeal to the king. When the apostle Paul was stoned and dragged to the edge of the city and left for dead, God provided him with health, and he got up, And walked back into the city center. When Abraham and Sarah were unable to conceive a child, God miraculously provided them with Isaac in their old age. When God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac, the Lord provided a ram in his place. When Israel crossed over into the promised land, God provided them with victory at Jericho. And when sin entered our world, God promised to provide a savior. And through Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, God made a way for us to become one with him again. Our God is a provider. He will give us exactly what we need in in order to accomplish his will. We don't have to provide for ourselves or take things into our own hands or worry about the future. We are simply called to trust. Trust our provider. Trust his goodness. Trust his love. Trust in his faithfulness. Trust in his kindness. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So seek first the kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. Then watch God provide for all that you need. This is where having a faith like a child becomes real. 
Children don't wonder if their parents will take care of them. They simply trust and even expect them to. The sign of maturity in the life of a believer is not depending less on God, but rather putting more weight upon him. Trusting in him for results rather than our own efforts. Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. When we come to know and trust the provision of God, we will begin to experience the peace that surpasses all understanding. As a means to drive home what it is to trust in the provision of God, I'd like to use a simple story that may be familiar to demonstrate what authentic belief or trust look like. Has anyone heard the story of the tightrope walker over Niagara Falls? Or is this new to all of us? Some people have heard it, yeah? Most of us or just a few of us? Okay, great, new story, here we go. Um, So, everyone knows Niagara Falls, yes? Great, great. Um, It's really high, really big, really long. So, imagine there's a tightrope stretched across Niagara Falls, okay? And you're on the side, you can see the tightrope, the tightrope walker comes up and he asks everyone, who believes that I can walk across the tightrope? The crowd is really excited to see this. They say, we believe, we believe. So he says, okay, here I go. He walks across, gets to the other side, comes back, right? Everyone cheers. They're so excited. That was amazing. And he says, okay, who believes that I can carry something across? We believe, we believe. All right, so, so he grabs a large bucket and carries the bucket and oh, balances his way all the way across and comes back. Everyone's cheering, going nuts, right? He says, who believes I can push a wheelbarrow across? We believe you, we believe. So he gets the wheelbarrow, he walks across, takes it one way, comes back. You know what he's going to say. Who believes I can carry someone across in the wheelbarrow? We believe, we believe. And he says, who's going to get in? (laughs) Silence. Right? There's a disconnect between saying, we believe, and getting in the wheelbarrow. The one who gets in the wheelbarrow is the one with authentic trust. The one who gets in the wheelbarrow is the one who truly believes. Everyone else is simply an observer. And so God asks us to get in the wheelbarrow and to trust him. He asks us to put our full weight upon the promises of his word. He calls us not only to love him, but to trust him. Once God has established that he will provide for Jeremiah, he begins to share details of what is to come. And so we'll pick up at verse 11, chapter 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The significance of the almond tree is that it is the earliest. It is the earliest tree to greet the spring. 
Kidner says that, so to when all seems dormant, God is wakeful, ready for his moment to fulfill his word. And I think he makes an important point. So often we look and start to think, God, why aren't you acting? Why aren't you doing anything right now? Jesus tells us that in the days of Noah, men and women were celebrating, marrying and feasting right up until the flood started, even though Noah had been building the ark for decades. Jesus also says it will be the same at the end times. People will be feasting and rejoicing. They won't know what's about to happen. He will return like a thief in the night. And while Jesus is preparing a place for us, as he promises in the book of John, only the Father knows the day or the hour of his return. Sometimes we need to simply rest and know that God is at work, even when we don't see it. He is working all things according to the counsel of his will, according to Ephesians 1.11. And 1 Peter 8 tells us, not to, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is at work, even when we don't see or feel it. Continuing on in verse 13. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am coming, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. And they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. Against all its walls, all around, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them, for all their evil is forsaking me, in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. Here we see the crux of Jeremiah's message disaster is coming to Judah. And not only is God allowing it, but he is even summoning it. Why? Why would God do that? Because of their evil, because of their idolatry, because of their forsaking the covenant God has made with them. This was not sudden. The Lord had been patiently waiting for hundreds of years for repentance. Generation after generation had forsaken him. They had gone astray. They had become evil to the point of sacrificing their own children as a form of idol worship. They ignored the hurting and the needy, the orphan and the widow. They had no compassion on the sojourner. They had abandoned justice. God had called them to be a light to the nations, and they had become a place of contamination and corruption. They would not repent. They would not heed the words of Jeremiah. They would only respond to exile. And it would be God's love that would drive him to such an extreme. For apathy would let them remain as they were. But love would compel him to intervene, remove the cancer, and restore them as his chosen people. 
And so the Lord finishes with another charge to Jeremiah, starting here in verse 17. But you, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. God promises to protect Jeremiah, another promise of provision. God does not promise Jeremiah a life free from pain and struggle, but rather a life that the Lord will be present in. Jeremiah does not need to fear death, for as he follows the Lord, he will be invincible until he has fulfilled God's call on his life. This was true for many others as well. Jesus was not killed until the time had come. There were many occasions where a crowd wanted to stone him or desired to push him off of a cliff, yet he was untouchable until he went to the cross. The Apostle Paul could have died from any number of public lashings, shipwrecks, stonings, even snake bites, yet he remained alive until he had fulfilled the Lord's purpose for his life. King David had battled in numerous dangerous battles, had been chased from his home by King Saul, and also dealt with a coup from his own son. Yet the book of Acts tells us that after David served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. Not before he had served God's purposes, but after. He fell asleep and he was buried with his ancestors. God tells Jeremiah to fear him rather than people. Jesus echoes this when he says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so that's the end of chapter one. There's just some, some simple observations that jumped out to me as I was going through this that I'd like to share with you. The first observation, we mentioned this already, God equips the called. He doesn't call the already equipped. Our willingness is more important than our giftedness. Think of the 12 disciples. They were a ragamuffin group, notably unlearned men. Yet the wildfire of the gospel set ablaze through them by the Holy Spirit continues to burn 2,000 years later. The second observation that we talked about is God is our provider. He gives us everything we need. He gave us existence, the very gift of our lives. He gives us the words to say in a moment. He gives us the provision of food and clothing. And through the Holy Spirit, he gives us guidance. And the fruit of the Spirit, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and even self-control. The third observation is God is not just a provider, but he's a willing provider. God's not like the towel guy at the gym. Does everyone know the towel guy at the gym? Right? He never seems to enjoy his job, but he's always giving you a towel. Right? So he's giving you what you need all the time, but he doesn't seem to like it. 
Okay? That's not how God is. God loves to give good gifts to his children. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7 that if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our Heavenly Father? We as parents know the joy of giving good gifts to our children. Right? When I, when I give my three-year-old son a gift that he delights in, I think I get more excited about it than he does. It brings me more joy. I think as a parent, I've been able to discover that truth where the Apostle Paul says it's more blessed to give to, than receive. Because when you delight in the joy of the receiver, it's an amazing thing to give. We are God's children. And so when he gives us things we need and things we desire, it delights his heart to delight us as well. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Jesus wasn't the towel guy giving you what you needed. He was pursuing joy as he went to the cross. It was a joy for him to die on your behalf. Romans 8 tells us that the father who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God's already given us Jesus and done it joyfully, what do you think he would withhold that you would need. He already gave you the most precious thing he can. There would be no reason to hold anything else back. Another observation, God is our protector. Exodus 14, 14 tells us that the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. And so in summary, God is our gospel. God is our good news. He isn't the medium or deliverer of good news. He himself is our good. Psalm 73, 28 says, As for me, the nearness of God is my good. Psalm 16 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The joy of heaven is that we will be with God. That's what makes it so great. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for just the amazing, wonderful, loving God that you are. We thank you for your grace that you constantly pour down on us. We thank you just for creating us, Lord. The fact that we can be here this morning, the fact we were able to get out of bed and come here. Lord, the million ways you provided for us to wake up and have another day of life is such a gift. We thank you that your mercies are new every single day. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to worry about what we will eat or what we will drink, but rather we can seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that you will provide for us what we need. Lord, that is why you tell us, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough of its own trouble. You desire us to live in the here and now, in the present, 
knowing that tomorrow is in your control and you will give us whatever we need to walk through it. Lord, we thank you for the life of Jeremiah and his faithfulness. We thank you for the example he is of someone who responds to you. And even though he faces hardship and tough circumstances over and over and over, he remains faithful to you because he knows you are what matter. Being with you is what life is all about. And uh, God, we just ask you to lead us now as we worship you and respond to you, that you would turn our hearts to you and that we would really walk as your children every day. In Jesus' name, amen.